what should the people of the United States do about this information? Because we know that we're being controlled by a a, a, a depraved cabal of high-ranking perverts. But what is what does the average person do? Uh, see, that's always the question, and honestly, I wish I knew. Uh, it's just so paralyzingly vast that it just makes it hard for any individual to feel like they can make a difference. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I mean that's like maybe we should all everyone get together and just bum rush someplace. Not Area 51, but. You know, like, I don't know, go to the island, like everybody, like a fucking Dunkirk flotilla of boats, just go to the island and rip it, rip it open with crowbars until we find everything in there. We are, uh, we are, um, encouraging that greatly. Uh, I I hope that there is some lonely psycho listening to this (laughs) who is aquatic in some way, some sort of either has gills or access to some sort of sailboat and will make it out there. And, uh, a maritime man. Yeah. A maritime man. It's like Mike, like myself, except more mobile. Um, yeah. Single with no children should go out there. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Matt. It was a pleasure, uh, pedo hunting with you. All right. Uh, so Max, what was that? That was, uh, the very first episode of True Anon, which is a podcast that I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with. Uh, you know, the it's like QAnon, but true. Yeah, it, it's like it's like a really, really reactionary framing, but from the left. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, reading Pizzagate from the left. Uh, <laughs> literally is, is what it is. It's literally um, what it is. Shallow words bring nothing new. Shallow words bring nothing I don't know. It's obviously this is a podcast that's all about backtracing every single detail of the Jeffrey Epstein story that's unfolding. But the clip that we just heard seemed to also kind of reduce politics to that. Obviously, we'll hear that, you know, it was a joke to, you know, kind of storm the island or whatever. But like that is what socialism is for for these people is, you know, we have to go to where the money is and we have to go to the island and, and you know, redistribute <laughs> all of the um, the pieces of feminine nature who are on the island. There's going to be more where that came from later in the episode, especially for those perhaps more astute listeners you know, the working class is very much a maritime man. And I think uh, Robinson <laughs> Crusoe has uh, has something to say about that. And likewise, Marx. But don't worry, we have a nice uh, long Marx reading planned. But um, yeah, I think I also wanted to say and like reflect a little bit more on the Epstein thing on its own terms mm-hmm. um, before we get into that and get into some of the connections we're trying to make here to this sort of broader critique of the sort of island discourse which is i think what we're what we're calling it here yeah well well, we've been kind of feeling our way through the two of us being like more island discourse whenever there was a right-wing you know populist quote-unquote uh podcast or rising segment or something that was just intently intently focused on the newest bombshell about you know how 
how the ruling class has been infiltrated by sex perverts. And and likewise, I think, you know, it's really interesting to think about the Jeffrey Epstein narrative and, and this narrative of like a what what Bryce Belden called a sort of like international cabal of sex perverts. Mm-hmm. Um thinking it along the terms of political economy, because I, I do think ultimately uh, that is what the true and gambit is, is, is modeling a theory of the case as it comes to left political economy onto the Epstein narrative and all of the juicy details and grotesque, painful details that are implied. And, and there's, there's definitely a desire linked up to that and and how they model political economy and international political economy yeah there's there's the sense that that following the epstein case like that's that's the window into Mm -hmm. talking about capitalism Mm -hmm. because because there's this sense that uh talking about epstein is something that you can do with like your boomer relatives to Mm -hmm. you know kind of red pill them and and importantly, too, talking about the way, like, the working class and working class, um, you know, I, I think to say this in a, in a way that it resonates all of the sexist uh, notions that are around it, but, like, mm-hmm. your working class daughters yeah. are at risk in this. And, and mm-hmm. it's sort of trying to map this sort of um, late 20th century panic uh, and and cultural uh, the acceleration of pedophilia as this sort of uh, sort of touchstone for uh, white panic and white fear and integrate right. that and synthesize that into a model for leftist political economy writ large and um, which is not obviously to say that like Epstein like Epstein is a pedophile uh, allegedly here. And, and all evidence certainly points to that. Um, and all of his crimes, as well as that of Ghislaine Maxwell's and others, are, are horrendous. Mm-hmm. But the point being here is that there's a way to reify that as a fully fleshed out uh, theory for leftist political practice that is really harmful. Yeah. And I think that's part of the gambit of this podcast um, that we are... Uh, that we are undertaking right now, which is to sort of spell out both historically, theoretically, and then also specifically in the present, why it's harmful to reify this case on the left. It's kind of analogous to our criticism of reifying capital, right? Mm-hmm. Because this this is how the Epstein story mirrors the Marxist formulation of capital is, you know, capital is this result of a natural process of accumulation that eventually becomes autonomous from the state and from the authorities and begins to shape the state and shape the authorities and you know obviously then you know the the living embodiment of that is you know this person who's on the outside of of the law and of government literally on an island just sucking uh you know people and money and resources out of the society is is sort of the uh the image that's being painted here Mm -hmm. and likewise right 
the the person on the outside of the government is imagined still to be fully supported by sort of the sort of dark wing of capital um which mm-hmm. is the intelligence or the are the intelligence services and the CIA and then Mossad and the uh, it's it's important to think of a sort of CIA Mossad operation in this image that they're drawing together and and Truanon points to it quite often um but and so there's this sort of perversity around what's holding up capital as well as um, being subject to capital and, and, and that contradiction for um, for people like Matt Chrisman and, and Brace Belden and Liz Franchick is what is the motor for this sort of dialectic of pedophilia and assassination that controls every aspect of our lives um which i think is is maybe a good synthesis of what what the gambit is in for the true non podcast and is sort of its own i guess critical analysis that we're trying to undertake here that will hopefully spell out throughout the episode with more detailed uh explorations Mm -hmm. of its historical lineage so okay so let's start with the first reading yeah so um i wanted to pull up uh, a text from a collected uh, volume of uh, Gilles Deleuze, the French philosopher, um, who wrote about desert islands, believe it or not. Um, and among a wide oeuvre of work, Gilles Deleuze, of course, is uh, famous for uh, a few, quite a few things. But notably here, what we want to talk about is... Um, the way he figures the island um, as a sort of origin, but also an endpoint. It's sort of a teleolo- teleology of islands um, is another way of putting it. And so um, starting from an island and ending on an island, the causal mechanisms of political economy are relations of islands. And I think that this speaks to um, how people like really imagine like the Cayman Islands, for example, as like the, where mm-hmm. the money comes from. Um, yeah. And we'll get into more of that in detail, but that, I think that's a good setup for reading this text from uh, Deleuze. Yeah. And, and also just before you get started on that, I want to flag for listeners who may have listened to our planet of the humans review mm-hmm. uh, that we reviewed a, uh, text called uh the post-human manifesto um at the end of that uh at the end of that episode that basically uh argues for this kind of um eco-pessimism <laughs> we could call it certainly that one is, way to call it yeah um that is essentially arguing that the original relation between man and nature which we'll then see in Deleuze because post-humanism comes from Deleuze. Mm -hmm. It argues that the relation of man and nature is fundamentally one of man taking and depleting nature. And I say man here deliberately. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really we'll see is what the image of the island represents. You know, the, the kind of original man in this nature that hasn't been depleted yet that is kind of freshly taking from it Mm -hmm. um, in in this way that's not even mediated by a society because it's an island. All right. So Deleuze writes, dreaming of islands, whether with joy or in fear, it does not matter, is dreaming of pulling away, 
of being already separate, far from any continent, of being lost and alone. Or it is dreaming of starting from scratch, recreating, beginning anew. Some islands drifted away from the continent, but the island is also that towards which one drifts. Other islands originated in the ocean, but the island is also the origin, radical and absolute. Certainly, separating and creating are not mutually exclusive. One has to hold one's own when one is separated, and had better be separate to create anew. Nevertheless, one of the two tendencies always predominates. And we're here on the outside. Only we are on What I want to start with here, which I think is is uh, actually, it's a really powerful passage in all of the most uh, sort of problematic ways that I think maybe we've been pointing out. But mm-hmm. if we think about alienation and what, what is implied here as being alone, um, being essentially outside of capitalism, right? The island is also the origin. The So we come from the island. Mm-hmm. We are for ourselves, right? In the sense of being for oneself, which is what the famous Hegel uh, construction as one side of the dialectic is, um, is this imaginary, right? We are imagined as a sort of Edenic uh, relation to nature on an island where we are Robinson Crusoe as ourselves, just sort of having our own use value time, right? (laughs) Socially necessary labor time party. Um, And What's so fascinating about this is that what Deleuze is doing is structuring the possibility of creation, of starting and beginning and origin elsewhere, right? Creation is elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think importantly, what this means for our narrative here is that capital is elsewhere because capital creates money in this Marxist imaginary, not right. It's not a legal relation Mm because law is superstructure. And so capital creates money elsewhere and we have to go get it, which is what precisely Chrisman and Belden and Franchik are, are talking about, right? We have to go to the Island and get the money, except in this case, it's not money. It's like a signifier for money, which is information knowledge because if at least if we have this sort of enlightenment sense of what happened, maybe then we have a chance. Right. The, the idea is that money here and information and enlightenment and all of these things uh, are the products of a natural, non-legal, like, you know, think material, like the base process of accumulation. Mm-hmm. And this process precedes law. We talked about um, we talked about Agamben and post-structuralists in our second episode, uh, who sort of argue that power also, you know, kind of accumulates. Right? It's it's prior to any kind of centralization, and it's actually what's at the heart of centralized governance and of. Uh, the social contract and this whole liberal imaginary of what a society is, you know, are, is that it, it comes from this naturally privately accumulated p- 
power that that's just the way of the world and the way of production we're fallen from uh any kind of existence that is not the sort of decentered accumulation and another thing i also want to flag here too is in um the scaling the cascade episode where i sort of go off for two and a half hours um about the superstructure project um and like our project here is one that is indebted to this idea of analogy right or partial Mm -hmm. cause or or analogical causation or analogical relation i.e um we we're trying to resist here totalizing logics and Mm -hmm. And when Deleuze talks about the island as the origin that is, and it is a radical and absolute origin, what he's flagging here is precisely the opposite of that, right? There is a univocal origin, right? That is a radical and absolute origin, a radical absolute wholeness from which we all drift away from and in drifting away in our alienation, we also drift towards. And... The, the, this dreaming of islands, whether in joy or in fear, is precisely what Truanon is doing, right? They're dreaming of islands. And you can sort of tell when you're listening to Truanon how bound up in the desire for the island they are, right? It, it's, in some moments, it's, 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 it's fear and it's scary and it's... And, and, they're trying to really bask in that fear but in others there's this real like picking apart of the gruesome details and just how Mm -hmm. joyous that feels and and to think like if we wanted to think with psychoanalysis there's sort of a there's a real pleasure in that process Lacan would right call it the jouissance Um, yeah well it's it it's the hedonism of purely using uh everything as including people as nature and resources and all these things that is forgiven because in this liberal imaginary we have fallen from this from that state of nature where we can just harmlessly use but still there's this like yeah as as you say obsession hedonistic Mm -hmm. pleasure it's almost like you know we have to storm the island because uh, Epstein has created socialism for himself there. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, and... yeah. Well, we're going to talk more about that. But like this hed- mm-hmm. hedonism of the damned, I think would be perhaps per- the precise term here. And if you wanted to think with Lacan here, Jacques Lacan, um, it's also forever impossible, right? We can never storm the island. It's always only on the horizon. And to think metaphorically about an island, right? You can never actually get there. Because the closer you get to it, the further away you get to it. And so this sort of conspiracy loop is constant. Mm-hmm. And it's ultimately the process itself, like podcasting itself, becomes the resolution to this. It's this sort of desirous knowledge uh, accumulation relation that ultimately always fails. Yeah, and they're self-reflexive about that. In the same way that that everybody is self-reflexive about you know being addicted to Twitter... Um, they are self-reflexive about having Epstein brain is the thing that they joke Mm -hmm. about constantly that they're uniquely qualified in like kind of tongue in cheek. They're uniquely qualified 
because they have unlocked their obsession with learning all of the gruesome details. Mm -hmm. It's a drift. It's like they're getting a taste of what it would be like on the other side of class society by looking at this man who is skipping ahead to socialism before he's able to do it without hurting anyone. Yeah. Which is the gambit of like resting everything on automation and technology and the forces of production accelerating such that although we can't return to our state of nature, we can dial the mediation between us and just purely using to our heart's content, like dial that down to like the most efficient and like least coercive and least harmful least time intensive as possible Mm -hmm. uh to drift back towards the island right it's like epstein is um supporting an island from you know being parasitically attached to this continental life that we're still fallen in Mm -hmm. uh and because everything is zero sum and we're not in socialism world that can only uh, be the form of like human trafficking yet the socialist goal uh, you know a la matt brunig and you know fully automated luxury communism is like we should be able to to live like our most hedonistic lives that we possibly can without hurting anybody mm-hmm. because there's a historical teleology where eventually we will get to a point where that's possible. We, we all get islands. Universal basic <laughs> islands. <laughs> right. Yeah. Universal. Yeah. You make, make the whole world an island. Yep. A uh, series which of is... atomized islands or families, mm-hmm. you could even call them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's also skipping ahead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> shall we uh, move on to Jacobin? the Jacobin reading? Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, so as as we were saying in the beginning, um, there's this uh, slippage that they're sort of aware of and, and kind of reflexive about of, you know, Epstein really represents capital. Um, and the Epstein story is really a parable for capital's autonomous accumulation of power that will eventually subsume governments and allow them to operate and allow capital to operate outside of the law. Uh, this Jacobin article from Brinko Marcetic uh, is titled Jeffrey Epstein was the monster capitalism made. Only we are untouched. And Brinko Marcetic, <laughs> for the listeners, uh, mm-hmm. this will probably like exactly date this podcast. But Brinko Marcetic also has been sharing uh, recently the new Third Rail publication project from the people who brought you the bellows. Yeah, after we single-handedly caused the bellows to collapse... Uh, I actually think that's true, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should start a true non style podcast that just gossips about the bellows. Yeah, I mean, I guess that being reflexive, that's sort of what this podcast can be at times. Well, you know, it, as a treat. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so Jeffrey Epstein was the monster capitalism made. At the center of the sordid tale of Jeffrey Epstein lies a single glaring truth. Epstein could never have done the unspeakable things he did if he hadn't existed in a world that allowed him to amass unlimited wealth, right? So Epstein is endowed with evilness. There's nothing we can do about that because that's just our brains. Well, we're we're also damned. We're damned to all, you know, going back to the hedonistic pleasure, all want to just sociopathically 
use people and use the world. Um, and Epstein is a cautionary tale then of what happens if we don't redistribute the naturally accumulating wealth that brings people towards that <laughs> towards that destination. <laughs> so here's another. Money and wealth explain virtually every facet of Epstein's crimes, which is, Ooh. yeah. Okay, so I kind of want to go off here a little bit. I, I we're, mm-hmm. we're only just into this article, but it's freaking bizarre to me that, like, the first impulse here is to say... There is an external cause for Epstein's crimes. Right. Which is not to say, right, which is not to say that there aren't structural foundations for all activities that go on in any place, right? But mm-hmm. this also comes back to the island being like the absolute and radical origin. Ultimately, what that means is that ethics is impossible, right? Because if money and wealth accumulation are the source of Epstein. Mm-hmm. And I think that literally at, at times Trunan and then Chapo as well, depending on uh, how they're feeling that day, will say this <laughs> literally like um, that money makes you into uh, a, a perverted sociopath, mm-hmm. um, which again, like, you know, we can think, very critically and nuancedly about uh, the so-called Jewish question uh, when it comes to this. And I think we're going to get into that more with Marx later, Mm -hmm. but um, essentially what this does is it's actually by trying to point out structural foundations in a way that is absolute, a sort of universality that is univocal rather than analogical. So it's an absolute universality that flattens all particularity in a sense rather than a universality that is partial and that allows room for different non-identical repetitions of the same um, as, a, as a structural foundation. And so, like, I can provide an example, and I will later on, for, like, what an alternative structural foundation to this problem could be. Mm-hmm. But doing it this way is actually exculpating Ep- Epstein, right? Yeah. As a human being. And exculpating... Trump and exculpating Bill Clinton and Steven Pinker Mm -hmm. and all of the other people who have been caught up in this conversation, right? And in this, in this scandal, which is to say, oh, if only they were poor, then they wouldn't be pedophiles. (laughs) Right. Or even worse, everyone is a pedophile if they get, if, but they just are unable to, um, actualize that because they don't have the money to do it and Mm -hmm. i think what's happening here is that the one's own anxieties and car and and like the hidden cards are being put on the table which is that this sort of hedonism of the damned is ultimately a feeling and anxiety about one's own desires for the island and of dreaming of, of islands in the first place and so an alternative like way to formulate and think about structural conditions here would be to say governments variously speaking mm-hmm. have not done enough in the ongoing process of cultivating social relations and the ongoing creation and recreation and transformations and retransformations of the production process 
to disallow or mitigate the possibility for things, places like islands to exist, so-called outside the jurisdiction of legal mediation, which is Mm -hmm. not even true in the first place, of course, because, you know, Epstein was arrested, which is not to say that there wasn't a lot of shenanigans to go on with that. But there's there's so many contradictions being played, played out here in this imaginary of an island that is off alone, but also not. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 the it's the same tension as capital and, you know, capital is separate from the state uh, once it becomes, you know, powerful enough to usurp it. But then it's still, um, you know, it can be regulated, but there's this like slipperiness of like it can be regulated, but structurally it's an advantage not to be regulated because political power comes from money because you need to accumulate money and or like the only thing that comes out of it is this kind of like it's a long shot to to regulate capital and it probably won't work right rather than to see capital or whatever cap capitalists which i would think we'd prefer to suggest mm-hmm. as constitutive of money creation in the sense of they're being deferred to here um by by uh, a sort of political agency of the whole Um, and by governments at various stages and that agency can be reasserted over that process. They are not ungraspable. You can't only drift towards them and away from them at the same time to think with Deleuze here. Mm -hmm. Um, But another aspect of that is of course, like this sense that, I mean, it's pretty basic, but what's really being posited here is that money is the root of all evil Mm-hmm. Um, and that as a root, right, root coming from the term radical, right, it is absolute, right, radical and absolute, um, in the sense that we have no agency over anything, really, except for our sort of aesthetic posturing in the midst on podcasts. Right, because um, because money is imagined to be the natural outcome of the move the dialectical movement of history outside of um or over determining human agency where there is accumulation and you know i mean there's the marxist stories of this more liberal stories of this you know but basically money comes out of barter and exchange and what that means is that because we are fallen into a world of, you know, this kind of Hobbesian power differentials uh, that that money comes out of, we are stuck with money as our original sin. Um, And then that becomes the logic of, like, social contract theory, right? That, like, Mm -hmm. we start with this original sin of, like, we're all individuated entities that are naturally accumulating power and we, you know, join together willingly to create like a kind of sovereign or something. And then we round down uh, and like devolve the administration of that sovereign to make it more democratic. Like this is this is the idea of like put all the put all the money in a fund that is owned by the state, you know, and then and then just have like a national shareholder meeting or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. We could even call it the Island fund. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and also like to make a, a, just an aside here, I think it's worth unpacking. Like you talked about the dialectical movement of history mm-hmm. um, that like the, the end point 
is is the island itself right that's the that's the imaginary that we're working with here and i think that's what deleuze in you know affirming and drawing this out is is really useful for obviously he's wrong here but um but he makes very clear what what this is is we started on an island for our own selves we were thrown into relations with others that are not natural mm-hmm. according to this imaginary right that are artificial that are dependent relations um and in the contradiction of those two things perhaps at one point we can get back to the island but in a social form um and that is the that is the full imagination and like i feel like we're gonna we're front-loading this to the marx reading Mm -hmm. but what's important about this to say is what it imagines in the first place is a purely unmediated or autonomous relationship of use and consumption right or use as consumption and production as individualized socially necessary um i like you're on a desert island you're cast away right mm-hmm. and you can, everything you make is yours and only yours and it's premised on this individual sovereignty um that I think is and then is rounded up to other levels, right? Whether it's the household or other, other, other aspects mm-hmm. of society. And, and fundamentally because Hegel is a philosopher of science, ultimately um, I think it's really crucial, crucial to say this, that the very premise of the dialectic of the coming together of a thing that is for itself with a thing that is for others all completely and totally is just is fundamentally wrong right in this sense that no thing or subject mm-hmm. or subject object right if we're thinking in the hegelian schema is ever for itself as a as a matter of a total univocal imagination and as well no thing or objects, subject, object, or however you want to frame it, is totally and completely for others, right? In the sense that it's all analogous and partial. Mm-hmm. And if you break that, it totally unlocks the key to actually identifying political economy and the roots of why people can't seem to understand money as a relation of this sort of anal- analogous partiality and why we end up ping-ponging back and forth from island to island master to servant across the whole schematic of not only historiography but of like a a future looking political economic vision yeah no well said um and i think now i'd like to move to move from there now that you know we've we've set up marx with hegel uh we can we can get started on marx and you know obviously marxists and Marx himself see the entire project as, you know, negating Hegel's idealism and inverting everything. Uh, but as Max just explained, you know, Hegel beginning with uh, subjectivity that is uh, living for itself, uh, that is then fallen into a world where it must live for others, um, yet it still ontologically is for itself and how does it reconcile those two things and it's 
you know, um, Marx actually just picks that up completely and uncritically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our gambit with calling it superstructure, the podcast superstructure, is that we actually want to uh, disagree with Marx here and disagree with Marxism in general. And I think that this is the first close reading that we've done of Marx, uh, although hopefully it won't it won't be the last uh, because mm-hmm. I, I think that this is all um, really, really important. But yeah, I mean, so Marx, as we'll see in in these readings from uh, what is this? This is from Capital Volume One, right? It is from Volume One. Yeah. So like as we see from what we're about to read, whether it is feudalism as a system or wage labor, basically it's this it's just how are we materially in the form of relations of production reconciling this deep contradiction uh within within ourselves in the world we're ontologically living for ourselves but we're born into uh dependence and a division of labor um and so variously uh how do we square that circle um and and that's really what every single uh you know mode of production in marx's you know dialectical movement of history tries to do differently and obviously in in a certain direction a certain drift Mm -hmm. towards the island and i also want to say here too um for some listeners who might be uh hearing what will was just saying and thinking well that also kind of sounds like heidegger too (laughs) um which means i've been talking to max for too long that's right yeah (laughs) um you wouldn't you wouldn't really be exactly wrong except in the sense that um it perhaps is not really dialectical, but this sense of being thrown into a world with others um, is very much the schematic that Heidegger uses in mm-hmm. thinking about being. Um, and it, it's bound up in the same sorts of problems of dependence and care and how we reconcile um, our own self, right? Our own being you know, and Heidegger would bristle itself with that of the world and of all the inauthentic relations um, that encompass the world, all the relations that are not uh, just doing like hitting a hammer on a nail and just doing labor and Mm -hmm. maximizing one's own utility. And so, um, but with that, that's sort of a short aside to say that these things are perhaps more connected even than it would seem. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and in the, in the sense that they sort of bind together modes and think of thought that are usually seemed as uh, imagined as separate when you enter the question through our particular MMT inflected critique of ontological atomization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and really, I mean, Heidegger is, is the ultimate atomizer uh, yep. because he wants to really like materially embed everything in history so that you can't talk about the self without talking about uh the self doing x you know or Mm -hmm. the self um in a present moment in historical time because to just refer reflexively to the self is is an abstraction and so i mean in some senses this is like 
you know, not a, like, it, it is a critique of Marx, but it's not really a critique of the impulses. It's, you know, Heidegger's just taking them further. Right, exactly. Ultimately to, to death, which is, uh, or, or as Hegel would say, to the grave. You know, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of interstitial uh, relations going on here, theoretically. But I think with that, we should start um, on the Marx reading, which is uh, early on in Capital Volume 1 on the commodity. And I'm going to put on my uh, literature professor hat for a moment just to talk a little bit about Robinson Crusoe, which is being referenced here um, is, you know, uh, a work by Daniel Defoe. Um, and it is largely seen as the first novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's actually crucially important too, if we're thinking back to the Deleuze reading, because dreaming of islands is very much a process of aesthetic creation in itself. And very much that's what the Crusoe stories or the, the 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 book is it's a it's an aesthetic dreaming of an island mm-hmm. and all the all the desires and problematics that play out through that fear and joy of being alone. Um, and I think to imagine Robinson Crusoe as somehow ontologically legitimate is to actually negate the power and the reflexive aspect of what um, literature does, which literature is an act of creation, mm-hmm. right? It's an imagination of a world that can either be like our own or different in certain ways. And the, and the tension between those things open up horizons of possibility and foreclose horizons of possibility. And I think what's going on in Marx's reading of Crusoe is that Marx is actually affirming less the imagination aspect, which is what I would want to affirm in the novel. (laughs) And more so what he sees as a reification of the not like, or what I would say is his reification of the novel novels, dream world itself. Right. Yeah. So we're, we're turning Marx on his head. That's, that's uh, right. Which is not going to make, not going to make anyone upset. No, I'm sure it won't. Um, Okay. So reading here from the commodity section, As political economists are fond of Robinson Crusoe stories, let us first look at Robinson on his island. Undemanding though he is by nature. Yeah, that's pretty fucking key. Yeah, that's really absolutely key. Because <laughs> he doesn't have to demand by nature anything because he's ontologically for himself. Yeah, he, right? he ontologically, yeah, you don't make demands unless... Like a demand is is mediating your use of something because you're yep. demanding somebody give it to you. You're yep. you're trying to compel uh, sociality, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, to mediate your like pure use of something. And so on the island, Crusoe has has no demands by nature. That, that's right. And so undemanding though he is by nature, Marx writes, he still has needs to satisfy. And must therefore perform useful labors of various kinds. He must make tools, knock together furniture, tame llamas, fish, hunt, and so on. Of course, his prayers and the like we take no account of here. Cough, cough, 
they're all superstructure, right? They don't matter. They're immaterial. They're symbolic. Yeah, whatever. but 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 he is endowed with uh, with a certain love of llamas that is extremely <laughs> uh, material and comes from the base. We'll get there. Um, so of his prayers and the like, we take no account here, since our friend takes pleasure in them and sees them as recreation, right? So mm-hmm. the the imagination here is that prayer and ritual is just pure physical recreation. It's a pleasure relation. It comes from the brainstem. Yeah, um, and and importantly, it doesn't require labor. That's right. Importantly, it doesn't require la- labor, and so therefore is not real. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, because it's not it's not a metabolic process. Mm-hmm. So Marx continues. Despite the diversity of his productive fun- functions, he knows that they are only different forms of activity of one and the same Robinson. More Hegelian language, one and the yep. same. Hence, only different modes of human labor. Necessity itself compels him to divide his time with precision between his different functions. Whether one function occupies a greater space in his total activity than another depends on the magnitude of the difficulties to be overcome in attaining the useful effect aimed at. And then think here that the fallen version of this is socially necessary labor time. That's right. So all the relations between Robinson and these objects that form his self-created wealth are here so simple and transparent, and yet those relations contain all the essential determinants of value. And so what we really have here is Marx essentially saying, like, the very structure of his theory of value is predicated upon being for oneself alone, not dependent on others ever. Mm-hmm. Right. That is that is the uh, those are the essential determinants of value. And what we want to say is that is historically not true. No one has ever been for themselves only ontologically, metaphysically speaking. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Marx's theory of value is wrong as a matter of philosophy of, of, of as a scientific matter right here, which is not to say that we are all about objective science but that if we're going to play marx's hegelian game Mm -hmm. this is a huge problem for marxism in general right and it's you know i mean another way of getting at this that generations of heterodox economists have been doing with neoclassical economics is this this idea of natural asocial preferences Mm -hmm. the late Heterodox economist Fred Lee, in an article with Steve Keen, writes, However, preferences have to come from somewhere, such as the consumer's family when he or she was a child, since the consumer must have some social basis for identifying objects to have preferences about, and socially derived reasons for preferring or not preferring this or that object itself uh, relative to some other object in the context of achieving a valued end. Consequently, an individual consumer outside of a social network wanting X thing as an acultural object for its own sake is simply unintelligible. This argument implies that objects which consumers have preferences for are socially understood and hence have social characteristics that cannot be derived from their technical characteristics. Mm -hmm. And 
and crucially speaking here, right, like the the point being then that even in the family, right, mm-hmm. th- these there's no family for itself either. Right. And so all of these preferences are socially mediated through the prayers or the ritual, right, in whatever form, the social ritual by which we are embedded and con- and conditioned. And that's why superstructure is important. It's because preferences themselves are not for themselves ever. Mm-hmm. And so, and also not completely for another ever. They are ana- analogous to the others and analogous to the self. And therefore, it actually breaks open classical economics in general to social agency because we can then begin the process of how of asking the question of what sort of preferences do we want to cultivate in society as mm-hmm. an ongoing transformational abolitionist even a process of political mediation and i think from there like having made that point i think it's then crucial to see the other side of what is implied here in the dialectic in the sort of Crusoe dialectic that Marx is drawing, which is total servitude, right? Mm-hmm. Total being for others. And so, um, yeah. so I'll, I'll continue then from here. Um, Marx goes on in the next paragraph, uh, with let us now transport ourselves from Robinson's Island bathed in light to medieval Europe shrouded in darkness. Uh, that's, um, that's maybe a little on the nose, even for Marx. Yeah, well, you know, it's um, it's it's just there's there's no such thing as a normative judgment, so that's actually just <laughs> that's just him being materialist, and uh, yeah. <laughs> um, here, instead of the independent man, we find everyone dependent: serfs, lords, vassals, suzerains, uh, laymen, and clerics. Personal dependence characterizes the social relations of material production as much as it does the other spheres of life based on that production. But precisely because relations of personal dependence form the given social foundation, there is no need for labor and its products to assume a fantastic form different from their reality. And and I want to emphasize here, right, because mm-hmm. some people might hear personal dependence and think, oh, yeah, interdependence, like that's good. Mm-hmm. But what Marx is suggesting here, not only is, I mean, personal dependence is better for Marx, but what per, what personal means here is crucially important. Um, personal is implied here that it's a one-to-one or rather even if not one-to-one a proximate relationship of dependence it's spatially proximate and transparent it has boundaries right Right. like there's yes it's at at the end of the day whether it's a self-sufficient uh family self-sufficient kinship network a self-sufficient town Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the idea is that um, these social relations, this like chain of mediated dependence has clear boundaries. It's territorialized mm-hmm. in the sense of sovereignty. And, and this is obviously also, just as a historical matter, not true at all, right? Sure, sure, the, the products of their labor, like the material products were owed to up the chain, right? To the Lord and etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally the overarching theological implications 
of the dependents were not personal at all. They were absolutely in a fantastical form, different from the reality of the material in the sense that you owed God, right? Mm-hmm. And in return, God owed you, right? And so it was a, it was a broader interdependence. And, and of course, then Marx would hear that and be like, oh, okay, so then, you know, that's when we get to capitalism where we don't owe our neighbors, we owe capital, yeah. right? Is that because only... Um, the the idea of of owing to something outside the the whatever bounded unit you're talking about the kinship network the family or whatever um, it can't be imagined as owing abstractly to to everything at once analogically it's just imagined as oh there's an alien force now that we all owe to called capital right and then another way of saying this is that capital. And like we, we can tie it back to the novel here too. Mm-hmm. Capital is what the imaginary for God in Marx's vision is mapped onto, right? Except it's imagined to be material in its immateriality rather than just superfluous, which is what medieval God and ended up being for Marx. In, in, in most instances, I would say. Um, people might say, well, he, he compares money to God and, and I would say yes, but only in a negative way. Um, but taking it from there then, like, I think what's crucial to say is, is that materialism itself is in no way this imagined objective construction, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a dreaming of islands to use the Deleuzian imagination. <laughs> right. It's the same thing as writing a novel about social relations in that it opens up a horizon of possibility and forecloses other horizons of possibility. And that is fundamentally what Capital, a critique of political economy, on my reading is, right? It's essentially a novel about mm-hmm. political economy. And um, I think that is crucially important for what counter visions of political economy are, which are also these imaginaries of political economy that variously conform to what, how the inner workings of uh, the metaphysical relationships that are operating um, are being determined. And, and we would just say we are uh, more correct historically about money as well <laughs> uh, to, to throw the, the Hegelian uh, schema at Marx. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with that, it could be useful to keep reading. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, Get it together, uh, Will. <laughs> um, they take the shape in the transactions of society of services in kind and payments in kind. This is uh, dependent labor. Um, personally dependent labor. Yeah. Yes, personally dependent labor. The natural form of labor, its particularity, and not as in a society based on commodity production, its universality, is here its immediate social form. The corvée can be measured by time just as well as the labor which which produces commodities. But every serf knows that what he expends in the service of his lord is a specific quantity of his own personal labor power. The tithe owed to the priest is more clearly apparent than his blessing. This is absolutely crucial. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the, uh, like, a tithe is not superstructure. It's just, yep. you know, a material redistribution of accumulation. Yep. Because you know why, right? Taxes are theft, but mm. spending is useless, superfluous blessing. <laughs> and so 
you can't spend your way to socialism, but by golly, you can be taxed out of socialism. Um, and that's literally what Marx is saying here. Right. And, and, and I, it's, it's hard for me to, to, um, to really understand why, uh, why people see this and hear this and read this and think anything else. Cause it's so apparent it's right here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just, it embodies the like production comes first kind of naturally, right? Because mm-hmm. production is the fallen version of natural of the like naturalized Robinson Crusoe on the island by himself, like building things. There's the fallen social version of that, which must be happening on its own uh, prior to taxing. And then obviously prior to spending too, Um, Mm -hmm. because Robinson Crusoe on his island didn't need to spend his, you know, anything into existence. That's silly. He's just on the island. He's using things. Yep. And no one could tax him there. Yeah. It's literally a tax haven. (laughs) Oh, that's really good. Um, Whatever we may think then of the different roles in which men confront each other in such a society, the social relations between individuals and the performance of their labor appear at all events as their own personal relations and are not disguised as social relations between things, between products of labor. Uh, I.e. there's no money. Yeah, there's there's no money. So, you know, at, at least this is a more... Uh, straightforward um, formulation of the reconciliation of independence and dependence. So continuing on then, uh, skipping one paragraph where Marx uh, really talks about the family and, and uh, you know, doesn't reify it at all. Um, <laughs> he writes, let us finally imagine for a change an association of free men working with the means of production held in common and expending their many different forms of labor power in full self-awareness as one single social labor force, right? The working class is one giant Hobbesian (laughs) Crusoe, right? Every little atomized individual comes together to create one big Crusoe. Right. And in the same way that, I mean, that's, that's the Leviathan. There's, you know, uh, it's, it's all of the different, it's just another flavor of this formulation. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a dictatorship of the proletariat. I mean, we can keep going on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So Marx writes, all the characteristics of Robinson's labor are repeated here. And he means in this one single social labor force, but with the difference that they are social instead of individual. Yeah, all, no, this this definitely sounds sounds social and not like <laughs> <laughs> this is so social. Will yeah, um, <laughs> a, a social. What is that? Some kind of big individual? <laughs> yeah, that's 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 right. It's uh, it's the. Would you rather fight a thousand Robinson Crusoes or one big Robinson Crusoe? Mm. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and and the answer, of course, is that we're fallen and we only have the thousand small Robinson Crusoes. That's right. Same difference. Um, <laughs> so all Robinson's products, Marx writes, were exclusively the result of his own personal labor, and they were therefore directly objects of utility for him personally. The total product of our imagined association is a social product. And of course here, imagined association it's all the cards there. This is a pure figment of imagination, which is not to say, crucially, that 
that's what makes it wrong. It's to say that this is contestable mm-hmm. as an imaginary and we have to contest it because it is not the route to imagining sociality as ontological because for Marx, it isn't. That's what makes his work in in his opinion so important is because we're not going to get there unless we become conscious of uh, how um, adopting uh, sociality will help us recuperate the sovereignty that we lost. Right. Unless we believe uh, our abusers and that we are damned, right? Mm-hmm. We are fully damned. And the only way is to fully accept um, our inadequacy as individuals in order to then not be individualistic again. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that may be a little hint for some future episodes, cough, cough, mm-hmm. that Will might be doing, cough, cough. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I'll continue. Now, now I have to do it. Don't now I? you have to yeah. do it. Hey, I, I did the long episode. You have to do yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really fucked up how you just used your imagination just now. Yeah, now you <laughs> have to partially be for me. Um, (laughs) i'll always partially be for you (laughs) oh that's so sweet um so marx writes one part of this product serves as fresh means of production and remains social but another part is consumed by the members of the associations as means of subsistence this should sound pretty much like socialism also Mm -hmm. like individual atomized robinson crusoe island because that's what it is this part the 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 part that is consumed must therefore be divided amongst them. And then we have distribution, which is ontologically prior to prior to creation here Mm -hmm. in the schema. Marx continues. The way this division is made will vary with the particular kind of social organization of production and the corresponding level of social development attained by the producers. We shall assume, but only for the sake of a parallel with the production of commodities, that the share of each individual producer is the means of subsistence in the means of subsistence is determined by his labor time. Labor time would in that case play a double part. Its apportionment in concordance with the definite social plan maintains the correct proportion between the different functions of labor and the various needs of the associations. On the other hand, labor time also serves as a measure of the part taken by each individual in the common labor and of his share in the part of the total product destined for the individual consumption. The social relations of the individual producers, both towards their labor and the products of their labor are here transparent in their simplicity in production as well as in distribution. And that is socialism, everybody. We all do (laughs) exactly for ourselves very clearly forever. And there's no power dynamics anymore. We did it. We abolished mediated power dynamics because I can have everything I produce in line with the amount of time. And there's no homogenization going on here. There's no classical economics going on here where we just homogenize preferences and then allocate efficiently based on time in order to maximize leisure. That, that None of that's happening. This is not neoclassical economics. The social product is that just comes from, from the brainstem. That's, that's, right. that's not uh, that's not something that's contestable at all, uh, except, you know, by outside, you know, superstructure people who aren't, you know, part of the social whole who want to impose their preferences on our natural brainstems. Oh, oh we'll get to them. <laughs> Only we 
are untouched. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, okay, well, you know, I used it very specifically. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm just going to continue onto the next paragraph. And I promise this is the last uh, Marx we're going to read for today. Um, so Marx continues for a society of commodity producers whose general social relation of production consists in the fact that they treat their products as commodities, hence as values, you know, obviously in capitalism. Mm-hmm. And in this material form, bring their individual private labors into relation with each other as homogenous human labor. Christianity, with its religious cult of man in the abstract, more particularly in its bourgeois development, i.e. in Protestantism, deism, etc., is the most fitting form of religion. And so what Marx is suggesting here, which I think perhaps is in line with Weber later on and in these sorts of things, is that Christianity is basically what capitalism is. And this is what I meant to say that like Marx sees the relationship between ritual and commodity relations as the same, except he sees commodity production as a material manifestation of Christianity, Mm -hmm. which is exactly wrong, (laughs) (laughs) which is in the sense that what I think Will and I are positing here is that Christianity is one analogous form of the maintenance and production of social relations that are immaterially mediated and constructed. Mm -hmm. And so is what we call capitalism, right? There's very, there's moneyness in all of it and, and none is more material than the other, right? It's constitutive at all, at all, in all realms, and it doesn't mean there aren't differences. Yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of think that it's that it's the germ that forms on the outskirts of our natural kinship society that that slowly subsumes and enslaves us and turns you, us into fallen social creatures. Do you want to continue to talk about the germ? <laughs> uh, I think if you keep reading, we'll talk about the germ. Okay, good. So Marx continues in the ancient Asiatic classical antiquity or classical antique and other such modes of production, the transformation of the product into a commodity and therefore men's existence as producers of commodities plays a subordinate role, which however increases in importance as these communities approach nearer and nearer to the stage of their dissolution. And I think we can figure out why Marx thinks it's uh, into a subordinate role with the next sentence here. Mm-hmm. Trading nations, properly so called, exist only in the interstices of the ancient world, like the gods of Epicurus in the Intermundia or Jews in the pores of Polish society. So what Marx is saying here, you know, it was the it was the 19th century. That's just how everybody saw Jews ontologically. Right. You know, but I think <laughs> what this is where we can start bringing it back to Epstein here. Yep. Right. And capital in the sense that what Marx is saying is that in classical antiquity and the Asiatic context, there were no Jews, mm-hmm. right? But now there are Jews in the pores of society, right? They are um, they are burrowing their way into society. Uh-huh. And I mean, that that's literally how people have talked about Epstein as burrowing yeah. his way into the ruling class. Mm-hmm. Shout um, out to the hills rising. Right. And and like <laughs> a big part of um, the conversation on Trunon and, and related with Chapo is trying to explain and demonstrate how Epstein was no true capitalist, right? Mm-hmm. He was just some 
guy. He was the go-between. Right. Who just was constructed into this intermediary <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and that then burrowed his way or perhaps was placed there by the CIA, but chicken or the egg, we can't really know. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the CIA here is just, you know, that, that's been compromised by capital. That's right. right. <laughs> and it has just become the discipline arm of capital. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to Foucault. Um, and, and so all things considered, like this is what the imaginary is drawing on. And so what, like to just to, to spell this out more in Marx, Marx writes that those ancient social organisms of production are much more simple and transparent than those of bourgeois society, because in bourgeois society, there is mediation, i.e. there are Jews and there are, there, there are, there is the Jewish question that is a, a real concern. Uh, for a left that wants to return to its island without them because the Jews are on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, i.e., you know, I mean, th- that's where the money is, i.e., Epstein is on the island, right? Like, th- it's all of a piece here. And so I think then to hit the last point here, which we want to talk about through Marx, um, I'm going to read about the connections then to um sexism and the imagination of nature as feminized purity um so continuing with marx uh just right after this sentence but they are founded either these ancient organisms right Mm -hmm. of production um ancient ancient organisms yes it's all material baby all vital Mm -hmm. um but they are founded either on the immaturity of man as an individual when he has not yet torn himself loose from the umbilical cord of his natural species connection with other men or on direct relations of dominance and servitude. So like this is, this is the imagination, right? You tear away the umbilical cord from mommy Mm -hmm. and then you are a Crusoe on an Island or you are in a direct relation of dominance and servitude, i.e. you are in the darkness of the middle ages right you can't you unless you tear yourself away from either of those things um that's the only way to get to socialism you have to go through capitalism in the first place right and so this is very much people say like marx didn't actually hate capitalism and i think this is a part of that right he certainly Mm -hmm. critiqued it but he also accepted everything it said about itself um and so these and and classical modes of production are conditioned by a low stage of development of the productive powers of labor and correspondingly limited relations between men within the process of creating and reproducing their material life. Hence also limited relations between men, man, Mm -hmm. and nature. And Will, why don't you go off about what is implied here in nature? And I will just say like, there's a reason why Marx talks about nature as, and, and man and nature as cultivating virgin soil. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that um, I think that listeners are probably already going to tell where I'm going to go with this. But yeah, I mean, basically, there's this imagination of man in nature, uh, just kind of purely using everything, um, using that which has never been used. Right. That's why Marx uses the phrase virgin soil um, and this idea of of man sowing his seed in virgin soil um that that's like that is pure 
um, pure use that is not coerced at all, right? Like, man does not have to do anything to, like, sustain a relationship or something like that. And, like, there's there's lots of ways that that has been, um, you know, reformulated and by, like, post-structuralists and, like, a Gombin, um, you know, into, uh, you know, this idea of, like, one-to-one human relations as being so simple that like two people simultaneously using each other reciprocity use of bodies like Uh uh-huh the like that's the reason why agamben calls one of the penultimate books of in his his homo soccer series the use of bodies right it's this pure um you know i'm using myself to use uh nature and that includes um other that includes parts of nature that are part of my natural like species being or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, of course you take this onto the Island and onto what the autonomous human embodiment of capital is, which is, you know, Jeffrey Epstein is very asymmetrically being this man in nature who is able to use everybody you know human trafficking victims you know all of his money his airplanes just everything is like the the entire society because of course we're not actually in socialism so we can't have this for everybody so since it's zero sum this means that it takes the form of jeffrey epstein uh but that is man in nature is (laughs) this robinson crusoe like our you know kind of barest selves just want to use without you know consequence yeah without consequence without being entangled or whatever and and epstein is like you know everything that he does all of the work that he does is not work for a society right even though it is work it's all work for himself and that's that is what is so scandalous about it is that like the blackmailing people and all of that stuff like that is just him doing the work that's on the other side of the balance sheet of his leisure which is which is consuming and using people and using people's bodies and one way that that marxists kind of square this circle of like you know we're fallen from this state of pure use of nature and pure man sowing their seed in nature and man sowing his seed in in women and using the the family and all of these you know unmediated structures of man using you know whatever he wants um like one way to kind of like reconcile that with you know the fact that we're fallen into a world where that can only be done by abusing people is to say like oh well the forces of production and like we will get to a to a historical moment where all of that evil has just been like automated away you know and and you can think of fully automated luxury communism and sex robots and like all of these weird kind of silicon valley fantasies of like getting to be jeffrey epstein without hurting anybody mm-hmm. um like as, as if that is that is what we need to strive for but then on on the other hand like deleuze or agamben post-humanists and post-humanists um like they're they're following a lineage that really goes back to to saint francis which we talked about in the second episode saint francis of assisi mm-hmm. uh who has this idea of like this honorable vow of poverty 
that that really is abundance because of its simplicity and uh you know you live a life of you know like you you reconcile the like the evil nature of man with the impossibility to actually actualize that uh by retreating into the self and like retreating from all all social forms and it's it's interesting too that you know Mm -hmm. like saint francis is like semi like roughing it up in nature with the birds and the trees Mm -hmm. and you know um and is i mean in in the robinson crusoe universe right like he is performing sexual acts like on trees (laughs) yeah i mean it's just the reduction of all relationality to use and Mm -hmm. sexuality to use right is um you know crusoe is on the island there's nobody to stop him from just like putting his dick in everything (laughs) and (laughs) um and so then that becomes the language that marx picks up you know this virgin soil and then that's what the post-humanists you know pick up you know that is the natural relation of like human existence to nature like raping the planet basically um and so the only thing that can be done really is to scale back human existence and ultimately not have humans exist. And that's, you know, that's taken to the other, you know, kind of direction than the fully automated luxury communism where, you know, that's just like we've automated the social contract to make it like so efficient that we don't even notice it. Um, but both of them are, are trying to reconcile this this like contradiction that really doesn't make a lot of sense, but is inevitable when you start with human beings as ontologically robinson crusoe on an island right and you know i think that's it's so well put and another way to think about like and i think i want to draw back to the point that we were making in the first place which is that fundamentally speaking the reason why this connects to mmt and why this connects to our a theory of money and a theory of dependence is that it's all premised upon the baseline idea that a thing, a being can be holy for itself, mm-hmm. which is not the case. And just being able to unspool or undo that realization is so incredibly powerful for the ripple effects it has in overturning the imaginary that has gotten us to where we are as a historical matter and where we are as a political matter and how we need to move on, go forward with a praxis that can really transform all aspects of our lives.
Further anticipation is chaotic one. 